Ephesians 5, verse 21. This is the seminal passage in the Bible about marriage. And so we're going to be looking at it today. In fact, we'll be looking at it for the next seven or eight weeks. Uh, maybe you're wondering why we would have chosen this particular topic because there are so many peop- single people in Harvest. In fact, there's more today, I think, than there have ever been before. And frankly, I can think of no better reason to preach about the topic of marriage because you're not going to hit something unless you know what you're aiming for. And so that's what this is about for the single people, those people who haven't been married yet. It's about trying to understand God's blueprint for marriage. And when you understand what his blueprint for marriage is, that changes everything about the way you relate um, to members of the opposite sex. It changes who you date, it changes why you date, it changes when you date. All of these things are changed. And the one thing I've, I've noticed, not from my own experience, but from just counseling people over the years, is that it's better being single and longing for a spouse than it is to be in a dysfunctional marriage. And so many people, because they're longing to be completed, they're longing to get married, they end up aiming at the wrong target, they get married for the wrong reasons, they end up in a dysfunctional marriage, and I can tell you, it's miserable. You might be miserable as a single person, you'll be infinitely more miserable in a dysfunctional marriage. So, if you're single, this is about preparing you for an awesome marriage, Um, And I wonder how many married people would have loved to have heard this series before they got married. Lots. You can be sure. And so it's also for us as married people to challenge us, to encourage us, to correct us in our own marriages. So it's about God's prototype for marriage. It's about God's plan for marriage. It's about marriage as God intended it to be. And our reference text, as I said, is Ephesians 5, 21 to 32. Let's read it together. Ephesians 5, 21 to 32. A general command, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he starts getting more specific and giving commands as they relate to the different roles in marriage. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. He's using this picture of bathing, of washing. It's very curious. And then he says, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives. And I must admit, this is something that has confused me for, for many years. Only just recently when I listened to a sermon by Tim Keller that it started to shed some light on this. Because um, I, I, I've got some bad news for you guys. This doesn't mean that you get to shower with your wife every night, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, we all know that guys just think it's the best thing in the world to see their wives naked in the shower. Um, and we all know that, that women kind of look and they're like... <laughs> That's a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> Isn't that the case? Well, it is certainly in my, in my case anyway. 
<laughs> so this is not about um, bathing together. Just hang on, you're saying your body's ridiculous. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, women are definitely not necessarily turned on by looks. Um, so, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Two things, just um, as we come to the end of that reading. First of all, a qualifier, and then some context. This passage is not saying that, for example, only wives should submit to their husbands, or only husbands should love their wives. What it's saying is that it, when you look at the roles that a husband and wife are given, sometimes the husband, for example, the role that he's given needs to be reminded more than the wife to love his wife and to care for her and to nurture her. That seems to come with the territory with women because they, they have that caring, nurturing aspect of the image of God inside of them. So this is not saying that only husbands love their wives. It's a mutual thing, but certain of those commands need to be emphasized depending on the roles that God has given us in marriage. So anything that we look at in this passage, maybe it's talking about the whole cleansing idea, that applies to both husbands and wives, and, and so it goes on. Then secondly, just a bit of context to put this passage into context, Paul is exhorting the Ephesians how to live as children of light. You can see that a little bit earlier on in the, in the chapter. What does it mean to live as a child of the light? You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. What does that mean? What does that look like? What does that look like in your marriage? How can we, pleasing, how can we be pleasing to God? He talks about there about making the most of every opportunity and understanding what the Lord's will is. And then he teaches us how to do that in marriage. He teaches us how to do it in the parent-child relationship and then also in the workplace. So if you want to make your life count, if you want to make the most of your life, then make sure that you have or aim for a marriage that is just amazing and follows God's blueprint for marriage. So let's dive in and seek an understanding of the Lord's will for marriage, starting with the purpose of marriage. And then we're going to have a look at some of the implications and applications of that purpose to being both single and married. What is the purpose of marriage? When I was a teenager, I thought that the purpose of marriage was it was a legitimate means to get naked and have sex with somebody. <laughs> That's genuinely what I thought, because um, it, I wasn't given very good or compelling reasons to save sex for marriage. I wanted to be obedient to God. I'd been told sex is only for marriage, so I, was, I thought that the main reason for marriage was that we could have sex in the context that God wanted us to have it, preferably before Jesus returns and we get raptured. <laughs> <laughs> 
But the purpose of marriage is friendship. And I think that comes to a surprise, as a surprise to us. Because let's face it, society is constantly teaching us through books, through movies, through miniseries, that marriage is about romance and passion. And even Christian pulp fiction writers will try and perpetuate that myth. Most people believe that romance and passion are the main course of marriage and that friendship is an optional extra. It's like a side salad. It's nice if you get it, but it's not essential. Romance and passion garnished with a little sprig of friendship. I mean, if you look at that meal there, the roast pork, that roast pork is the friendship. That is the thing that sustains you. That is the thing that feeds you. The, the um, cherries and the pineapple on top are really nice. They're wonderful. They're the cherry on top. But it's not the thing that sustains and feeds you. So what I'd like to do is to present to you a definition of the kind of friendship that we're aiming for in marriage. And this definition also comes from Tim Keller. He's been very influential in, in my thinking on this. Um, and here it is, the definition of friendship. Friendship is deep oneness that comes from a mutual journey to the same horizon. That's his definition. And what I'd like to do now is to, to dive into this text to show you that there is basis for this definition here in the text. It's a very good definition. So first of all, we'll have a look at deep oneness, then the horizon, then the mutual journey. So first of all, deep oneness. The Bible, what the Bible does here, you can see it all the way through, is that it uses um, the human body as a metaphor of Christ's relationship with us, with the church. It says that you and I are like members, arms, legs, eyes, teeth, of Christ's body. So what does that mean? Well, it means that there is a deep oneness between you and Christ. And then in this passage, he goes on to say, in the same way, your spouse and, and you and your spouse are so close that you are like parts of the same body. Can you see that in verses 28 to 30? All the way through there. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So there's this incredible oneness between us and Christ, and then that illustrates the kind of oneness that God intends for us to have in marriage. Deep oneness. And then in verse 31, Paul quotes from Genesis to show that a man and a wife become one flesh. And that doesn't mean literally the same skin and bones and sinew and muscles. What the Hebrew word is referring to there is one entity. So for example, on the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted a prophecy from the Old Testament. You'll probably remember it from Joel. And it says, I will pour out my spirit on all. And then most translations say people. But actually the original word is flesh. But the translation, all people, people as an entity, is correct. He's not pouring out his spirit on our skin. No, he's pouring it out on those people who have been called by God out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And he's pouring his spirit out onto them. 
So it's on a group of mankind. And then when Adam saw Eve, this is what he said. He said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You see, until then, Adam had been lonely. It was like he was incomplete. Something was missing. But when he saw Eve, he knew that she would complete him. So he didn't say, wow, she's sexy. No. Instead, he tried to put into words what can't actually be expressed in words. She's other than me, but she's a part of me. You know, when God asked Adam to name the animals, all the time he was looking for a companion. He was looking for the one thing that was missing that would fill that void in his life, that Eve-shaped void that God had placed there. And he couldn't find it until he met Eve. And then he was like, there she is, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And of course, it's obvious we know that he would have found her physically and sexually attractive. But the thing that really, really got to him was, wow, here's someone who completes me. There was something missing, and now I've found it. So when you get married, and you commit to a mutual journey to the same horizon, notice that word commit, you experience deep oneness. It's as if two elements have come together to create one compound, a completely new compound. I mean, think of hydrogen and oxygen. They're different elements, but they come together to form water, something completely different to the sum of the parts. They become one flesh. And the result of this becoming one flesh was that Adam and Eve could be naked before one another without shame. That is so significant. They were naked and yet they were not ashamed. Marriage is about committing to be totally transparent with one another. Completely naked and without shame. I should be able to bear my soul to Gail for her to know me completely. There shouldn't be any area that I feel I need to withhold from Gail for fear of rejection. And if you can't do that with your girlfriend or with your boyfriend, then it doesn't matter how much you're attracted to their body or to their pretty face. It really doesn't count as much as being able to be soul naked before somebody. And of course, the other implication of this is that we don't get physically naked with someone until we know that we can be naked and vulnerable and totally transparent in the way that I've been talking about. It's just not appropriate. And it only ends in disaster. So there's a very unique friendship that develops in marriage, and it's because of the deep oneness that happens. It's a friendship that has priority over every other friendship. And it's a friendship, this is interesting, that can only find its fullness heterosexually, across from one, between one sex and another. Why is that? Well, it's because if you think of how God created man and woman, it says God created man in his image, then it says, male and female, he created them. So the complete image of God is only found in that one fleshness of man and woman. It doesn't happen in a homosexual marriage. And that's why 
marriages between a man and a woman. And then as we do that, Gail and I can reflect the full image of God as best we can, as the Holy Spirit's enabled us to the community around us, through our children, and that's a, it's a wonderful thing. It can only happen in marriage the way God designed it. Okay, so that's the deep oneness that we, that's in the definition. What about the mutual journey to the same horizon? What is that horizon? Well, remember we noted that Paul likens Christ's relationship with the church to the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. These things are supposed to tell us stuff about one and the other. So what is the ultimate goal or horizon of Christ's relationship with the church? There it is. To present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Can you see there that the goal of marriage is holiness? When a man, this is, I love this. Once again, I've got to give credit to Tim Keller for this. When a man and a woman stand before the altar, which symbolizes the throne of God, they're like kids playing dress up for something that's going to happen when they've grown up. You see, one day Christ will present all of us to himself in front of God's throne, radiant, without any stain or wrinkle or blemish, And on your marriage day, you dress up in such a way as to create a picture of that. You wear a white dress. You wear clothes that have been ironed, that don't have wrinkles in them, that don't have stains on them. You're carefully groomed. I even went so far as to shave my beard off, and Gail was quite unhappy about that because she liked me with a beard. Um, But that that was what I did. And as you look at each other, You are looking at a picture of the horizon. That's what you're aiming for. Holiness, blamelessness. Let's put this in some different words. The Bible uses a number of of words for love. So one of them, as you all know, is philos, which is like friendship love. Another is eros, which is erotic or sexual or romantic love. And C.S. Lewis, in, in one of his books, He paints two different pictures of Eros and Philos. And he says that Eros is depicted by two people gazing at each other, and Philos is like two people standing side by side, gazing at the same horizon. And the interesting thing is that if you have the Philos combined with that deep oneness that comes from marriage, then the Eros meets heights it never could have attained without the philos. And that's the truth. There is nothing more thrilling and more exciting than being on a mission with your spouse. And I can say that with confidence because we've been going, we're in our 27th year now, and it just gets more and more exciting. We're committed to one another's holiness, And we're also committed to the work that God has called us to do. We're standing together. We're looking at that distant horizon. um, And it is wonderful. And it's very romantic as a result. So my mission in marriage is to bring the male aspect of God's image to the marriage. So that Gail can become everything that God wants Gail to be. 
And of course, she does the same thing for me. Let me give you a picture of this. Um, I, I read a book years ago by Irvin Stone. It was called The Agony and the Ecstasy, and it was about the, the famous artist and sculptor Michelangelo. You know, the guy who painted the Sistine Chapel, and he did that, oh, many beautiful statues, but the one I love the most is called the Pieta. It's, it's a statue of Mary uh, holding Jesus after she's taken him off the cross and, and just looking at him. It's just a beautiful, beautiful painting. But uh, what, uh, what Irvin Stone said was that when Michelangelo looked at a block of marble, he could look beyond the blemishes and the cracks and the fissures in it, and he could see the sculpture that he wanted to release from the marble. And that's the same with us. We need to ask God to help us look at our spouse, look at the block of marble, and see what God wants to release. And he's going to part, we're going to partner him in that process of releasing that beautiful sculpture. And, you know, the fact is, if you're a single person, probably all you can see is the beautiful sculpture. But I'm telling you something, you're living in deception. <laughs> it's an illusion at the moment. Well, it isn't an illusion, it's part of the picture. The rest of the picture is that there are some ugly things. There are some things that need to be changed. And if you're married and you've been together and you got past that sort of um, glory, the glory stage of, of, of the marriage, um, you're going to see some stuff and you just all that you're going to be able to see is, is some of the, the blemishes. And you need to remind yourself, no, I'm not looking at the blemishes. I'm looking beyond to the beautiful sculpture. Um, I'm going to work with God to bring this out. So that's the horizon. We've talked about the horizon. Let's have a look at the mutual journey. What is this mutual journey? Have a look again at the passage, and let's see what Christ does in order to present us holy and blameless. Remember, that's the horizon we're moving towards. That's what we're committing to. And the first thing that he does, and which we have to do for one another, is it's a journey of love. Now, there's, uh, there's so much I could say about this, and I'm sure it's going to come out in later sermons. But suffice to say that the Bible never describes love as a feeling. It is always, listen to this, a commitment expressed in action. Love is always a commitment expressed in action. Look. Look at that. We are to love just as Christ loves the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. He died for her on the cross. He committed to her, and then he outworked that commitment with action. Verse 21 says that we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does submit mean? It means to order under. So if I submit to Gail, I order my needs and my rights and my desires and my goals and my passions under hers. And it says that I do that out of reverence for Christ. In other words, since Christ gave up his rights by dying on the cross in order to clean us, to meet our need, then we should do the same thing for our spouse. And that's why it says, husbands, love your wives. Remember this, not implying that wives do not love their husbands. It's just that sometimes husbands need to be reminded more than wives. 
because when we get into our leadership role, we can run roughshod over people. <laughs> Husbands, love your wives. So it's a mutual journey of love. It's also um, a mutual journey of cleansing. So the image that Paul is using here is one of a person taking a bath and taking care of his body. And it's really worth reflecting on this because it's a fascinating image. And as I say, it's something that had confused me for years. So what Paul has already said is that a man and a woman um, become like members of one body. And so a person with different members hands, head, feet, eyes, etc. We've got the capacity to work on ourselves, don't we? And so, for example, I can cut my fingernails, I can brush my teeth, I can change the shape of my body by dieting and exercise. All of these things I can do. I can maintain my body in a healthy, clean state. And you know what? It takes a lot of work, doesn't it? A lot of work. And often what I have to do is very private and personal. It's also very sensitive. You've got to be gentle. You need to be careful. I mean, imagine if Gail was angry at, at me and I asked her to floss my teeth. <laughs> it would be a painful experience. <laughs> so, just as you clean your own physical body, you need to give your spouse permission to help you become holy. And your spouse is going to be able to see things that you can't see. Things that need cleaning up. Gail does this for me. It takes humility and trust on my part, and it takes love and gentleness on her part. And she does a wonderful job, I can tell you. I don't know how good I am, but she does a wonderful job. The, the, the one example of this that springs to mind, we were traveling down to South Africa on holiday. I borrowed Dave Eden's trailer, and we overnighted in Bulawayo, and I was using a GPS for the first time. I was so excited. Anyway, we turned out of the, the house of our overnight stop, and I was convinced that the GPS was taking me the wrong way. So I forgot that I had a trailer behind me, and I just screeched to a halt, and I reversed quickly into the trailer, and I jackknifed the trailer. And so I got out, and, um, and I used a lot of very unsavory words, I'm afraid to say. And afterwards, uh, Gail said to me, she didn't like turn to the kids and say, you need to forgive daddy um, because you, you saw what happened. Uh, it was an unfortunate, he's feeling tense, he's feeling worried. She didn't do any of that, she didn't cover for me. She just, in the, in the nicest possible way, later on, she said, you know what, Ian? The kids and I don't need to hear you swearing like that. That really is not good. And so then I was able to go to the kids and say, do you remember those words that I used? Those are very bad words. Daddy shouldn't be using those words. Please forgive me for using those words. And then the interesting thing was that we went with Tony and Trish on a marriage weekend um, sometime after this. And whilst we were doing a bit of group time, she said to me, you know, Ian, um, often when things go wrong, and then she reminded me of this occasion, she said, often when things go wrong, you, you, lose, poi you lose your poise and, um, and you say things that, that are uncomfortable for me and the kids, and you, you lose your temper. And it was just her, in a, in a very gentle way, reminding me, you know what? There's like a little bit of mayonnaise sticking on your chin over there. <laughs> you, know, you need to wipe it off 
It's like when I cut my hair. I cut my own hair. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> yeah. But I, Gail's always got to come afterwards and check at the back here because often there'll be little long bits and uh, she comes and she, she cleans it up. This is, this is this mutual journey of cleansing that we're committing ourselves to. We want to become like Jesus. And one of the ways that God has provided for that process of sanctification is by giving us a spouse to help us do it. Let's have a look at some implications and applications. Um, we're almost there. First of all, single people, no non-Christians. I hope that you can see that marriage is about having a common vision. It's about being on a shared mission. And the mission is defined by Christ. What, how does Christ define the mission? We are being transformed from glory to glory into the likeness of Christ. Not only is it defined by Christ, but it is empowered by the Spirit of Christ. So if it is defined and empowered by the Spirit of Christ, that means that Christ needs to be at the center. If you are a believer, you need to marry a believer because Christ needs to be at the center. You can't have a believer and a non-believer. And I would add that you can't have two believers with vastly different commitments. In order for a marriage like that to work, one or other is going to have to shift Christ. And sadly, it usually ends up being a believing spouse. Yes, you still believe, but for the sake of the marriage, you need to move Christ out into the suburbs. Not in the center, the city center, but out into the suburbs of your life, out into the outskirts. And that is a very sad state of affairs. Marriage is about having a common vision that you can both buy into and that you can both be excited and passionate about. And that excitement and passion has, has grown with Gail and I. I love what Gail does. She loves what I do. And we, we love what we do together. And Christ is there at the center. So don't be unequally yoked. That's the, the term that people often use. That's an implication for single people. And somebody asks, well, what if I came to faith after I got married? And the Bible teaches that it's not grounds for you as the believer to end the marriage. And we'll probably speak more about this later. Right, married people. We've argued that marriage is a mutual journey of cleansing towards a horizon of holiness, of Christ-likeness. I wonder if you can see what that implies. It implies that you and your spouse have got work to do. It implies that it's not going to be a walk in the park. The result is going to be glorious, but the process is going to involve blood, sweat, and tears. Hopefully, not literally blood. It's going to be hard work. It's going to involve snot and trauma. Marriage, the last thing that marriage is, is sweet and sentimental. You know, when we see a couple at the altar, it's moving, it's beautiful, there are tears of sentimentality, but remember that this is just a dress-up. It's a dress-up for the final destination. There is going to be a lot of work still to come. And I can guarantee you that there will be times when you fall out of like. And most likely, long periods of time. And that's not a reason to give up. It's a part of the process that you committed to on your wedding day. You may not like 
but you continue to love. It's just like looking at someone who's eating with their mouth open and they've got food on their... It's like, oh, we need to say something about that. I need to... At the moment, oh, all I can see is the, you know, is the masticated food inside there. I don't like it. But that's not what it's about. It's about heading towards that final goal. And remember that love is not a feeling. What did we say it was? It is a commitment expressed by action. You know, those feelings of romance that you felt when you were dating. Once again, Tim Keller points out that they were mostly just due to the excitement of a massive ego kick. This guy that you like and that you admire, that plays first team rugby, he wants to spend time with you alone. Or maybe this heavenly babe that all the other guys would love to be with, she's with you and she's holding your hand. See what I mean? It's an, it, it can be an ego kick and that ego kick doesn't last really for all that long and it's actually all about you, it's not about the other person. <laughs> it's, it's about your ego. So, no non-Christians, in and out of like, just commit to it. I, I'm sure that there have, have been many times when Gail has seen me at my worst. She hasn't liked what she's seen, but she has committed to me, and, um, and we, we're, we're in love, and we continue to be in love. I just couldn't imagine life without Gail. I feel so complete and, and so excited to be doing life with Gail. How to choose? Well, back to single people. Um, I don't know whether you guys still use this term, but when I was, um, when I was dating, we used to use the term spade work. Do you, do you recognize that? Spade work. Um, so, in case you don't know, spade work is like the hard work that you've got to do to try and get somebody to like you. You know, to, to, the work that you've got to do to get them to, to date you. And so, what is that? We've we got to decide who we're going to spade, right? So how do, we, how do we make that choice? And usually, it's looks. It's looks that we look for. Does she have a pretty face? Is she the body type that I like? How does she dress? What, maybe with the girls, it's like, how's his grooming? <laughs> does he use deodorant? <laughs> or uh, is he funny? Is he gallant? A lot of these things are external things. And at the end of this process, like if we walk into a room of 20 people, we're going to settle on maybe two or three people that we think are worth making an effort with. But what about the other 20 people? Amongst whom we might have found an excellent potential marriage partner. Because it isn't all about the physical. It's about the main meal, which is the friendship, the common vision. Don't judge. Guys and girls, if you're single today, by appearance alone. And then the last one that we're going to look at, sorry, I haven't been flicking through these. There they are in case you're making notes. Beware completion without commitment. It's another application for single people. Most people need the completion that can only be found in marriage because we've been created in that way. We have been created with a lack of completeness. Now there's some people, and we'll get onto this later, who have a gift of singleness or they're called to a gift of singleness, so they're better able to cope with being alone. 
um, we're not, you're not talking about those people at the moment. What we're talking about is most people are created in such a way that they will feel most complete when they're married. But the danger is that we start to look for the completion without commitment. And so we might start sleeping with somebody before they have given their, us that commitment to be with us for the rest of our lives. And we do it because we just, we long to be complete and we think that in the act of sex we're gonna find that completion. Only leads to tears. It's not the, it's not the right thing to do. Another thing that happens is, and, and often I'm sad to say, it's often guys who are guilty of this, a guy and a girl will be dating and um, it'll just go on for years. And they have this exclusive friendship, it's more important than every other friendship. Um, they spend time with, uh, with each other, they're vulnerable with each other to an extent, but one or other of them just will not commit. And it goes on for year after year. And what's happening is that one or other of those people is seeking for the completion without the commitment. And it's very sad. You know, if you have had a relationship that's been going on two, three, four years, and you say you're not dating, you say it's platonic, I'm sorry, but you are dating. And I, I, I'm hoping that my daughter Catherine will listen to this podcast as well. I'll talk it through with her. But if she, she hasn't really had a long, um, long-standing relationship yet. Um, but what often happens with women is they'll start going out with a guy and it'll be a year, and it'll be two years, and it'll be three years. For heaven's sake, if that guy is not prepared to commit to yourself after a year, then you need to ask him, are you gonna commit to me or should I look for somebody else? Do that, you need to do that. Because you know what happens, and I've seen it so often, what'll happen is they'll start going out and after four or five years, suddenly it breaks up. So you've lost four or five years now when you could potentially have been running for God um, full out with a marriage partner. You lose those four or five years. Then it's another year or two of, of heartbreak. And then you finally start dating again and then you meet another guy. Or maybe you don't. Just don't allow it to happen. Beware of people who are looking for completion without commitment. And so, the purpose of marriage. That's what it is. It's friendship. And as we have that kind of marriage, that deep oneness that comes from a mutual journey to the same horizon, we also achieve the ultimate purpose of marriage, which I haven't mentioned yet, but Paul talks about it in the passage today. He says, you know what, I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. <laughs> so when we have a marriage like this, deep oneness that comes from a mutual journey to the same horizon, what we are doing is we are showing the world around us, we're showing our children, we're showing our relatives, we're showing our friends the kind of relationship that Jesus Christ has with the church. We are glorifying God and that is the ultimate purpose of marriage. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that as we follow your blueprint, it sets us free. It, it enables us to live life to all its fullness. But if we don't, if we don't follow your blueprint, your, your rules and your laws will break us. And uh, Father, we don't want that to happen. And so I just 
I pray for every single person um, who is who is still waiting to, to be married. Um, Father, I pray that you would give them great wisdom. I pray that you would enable them to apply what we've learned today. And Father, I also pray for those who are married. Lord, you're always calling us to a greater standard. We're on that journey towards what we dressed up for at our wedding day. And when we stand before your throne and are presented to you spotless. So inspire everyone who's married. Please enable them and help them. And Father, just in closing, I know that, uh, I know that today we haven't talked about um, what it's like to be divorced um, or to have lost um, a spouse. These things are very tough. We're not, we haven't addressed that issue today. Um, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Um, and we, we, we will come to that. And so I just, I just pray for those who, who are just struggling, who, who feel raw as the subject is raised. Um, and Father, I pray that whatever is happening, that you somehow would, you, you would make up for the lack that they feel in their lives um, through a special closeness of your Holy Spirit and of your revelation of yourself to them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.